And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which was I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and, and to spare? And I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, you had devoured, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost 
and is found. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to move into a portion of Scripture that is full of truth communicated through the means of parables. We have already studied extensively several parables, and today we're going to, in the end portion of this chapter, the last half of the chapter really, uh, we're going to enter into perhaps among the top three at least best known and loved of the parables of Christ. Uh, certainly the parable of the sower and the seeds needs to be among those parables, the good Samaritan, and perhaps of the prodigal son. Those three are probably the best known of the parables of Christ. And uh, we are going to be looking at one of those today. I want to remind you of the setting in which we come into this type of teaching. We are in a mixed group where we have tax collectors and sinners drawn to the ministry of Christ because of his message of hope and of forgiveness and of uh, of being brought into the kingdom of heaven. We have also the enemies of Christ there as well. And while the secondary audience are the sinners and tax collectors. The primary audience that we find these parables addressing are the self-righteous Pharisees. The scribes is to them, specifically perhaps, that he was referencing these parables, and they understood that by the time he is going to be done with this. Um, if they weren't enemies before he started, they certainly were by the time he was finished. Because they understood that what he was speaking um, not only offered hope to the sinners, but were obviously targeted against them and how they were approaching his ministry, how they were communicating to each other and uh, to the world what they said. And we're going to see that contrasted here uh, was the way in the kingdom of heaven, which was through the keeping of the law. Not its spirit, but its letter. Before we look into our text and these parables, let's go, Lord, in prayer together and commit this time to him. Our grace is God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. Easy for us to take it for granted this morning, and yet it's a precious thing that we have. It's readily available to us, and we have an opportunity to study it and communicate today and uh, and each week. Let us not grow too accustomed today, Lord, to it. Guard us from that. That we might, out of familiarity, not honor and value it as we should. And so, Lord, we pray your hand upon this time, that your spirit might have liberty to move and work in us, both in in the communication, in the speaking of your word, and of the hearing of it. Both require your Spirit's work to be done well and to be effectual. Again, we pray you might guard this time. That your truth might be spoken. That the philosophy of men might be purged from it. From our thinking, from our application, from our evaluation and from our uh, understanding of your truth. Lord, that uh, we might receive it by faith, evidencing itself by our willingness to 
submit ourselves to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, the accusation comes against Christ that he is spending way too much time with sinners and giving them far too much access to his teaching and ministry that he even goes so far as to enter their homes and eat with them. And we all know that they probably don't serve very kosher meals. And who knows what kind of entertainment you might engage in there. And yet, we find a different heart than what the Pharisees and Sadducees assume is going on in their lives. We have a hungering and a thirsting after the message of Christ. That rather than any expectation of Christ conforming himself to their manner of living, we find them eager to conform themselves to his teaching. And this is the spirit that we find such men as Zacchaeus inviting Christ into their homes. That this was an honor for them and it was one that they would be responsive to, as we even see in Zacchaeus' life as one prime example where he chose to obey what others chose to ignore. That when others went away sad because they had much wealth, here a wealthy man chose to respond by giving away a great portion of his wealth and restoring what is right. And so this is when we think of tax collectors and sinners, I, I throw Zacchaeus out there as an example. I know he's not in the text at hand, but his kind are here. And by looking at him as an example, I want you to set that kind of ministry in mind. Christ was not joining them. They were joining themselves to him. But the Pharisees did not see it that way. They saw him receiving sinners and eating with them and condemned him for this, complained against him, it says in verse 2 of chapter 15, even though they were the ones that wanted to draw near to Christ and actually hear him, which was not the Pharisees' interest. And so we come into the parables. We find uh, a series of parables. We want to look at these three, for they focus on the idea of once lost and then found. The lost ones that are found. And each one is going to conclude with a call to rejoicing. That what really brings rejoicing, um, not in your life, not in the church, but even more than that, what causes rejoicing in the Father's presence in heaven? What makes God glad? And his servants, his angels, those messengers that are around his throne room, what is going to lead them to joy? This Christ wants to communicate, which will be very different than that which the Pharisees communicated. And so we begin not with a positive statement, but a, a negative circumstance. We have something lost. And we need to understand that that is the beginning point. The beginning point that God understands and that we need to grasp here is that we begin each of these parables with something lost. And so we start in the negative. We start in the whole and we must recognize that as our condition, right? That we come to God not with anything of value, but rather a lost one. 
that we in ourselves are, have, have detracted from the whole, not added to it. These lost ones, though, are particularly lost. And by that I mean that they are distinct in that they were once found and now are lost. They were once a possession and then a lost possession. And while we certainly look at these parables and we might look at the idea of evangelism, and it's not it's not void of that at all. And I don't want to communicate that, that somehow these aren't evangelistic in scope. Because certainly there's the idea that we are all the children of God as His creatures, and therefore we were His, and then chose sin, which made us uh, uh, His enemy by our choice, and therefore lost to that uh, relationship, and then could be found in coming to Christ. And certainly that is applicable here. Very strongly. I do not uh, want to detract from that, but I want to add to it. There's another sense here in that these individuals that he is talking to have classified themselves above even the rest of God's people. That there is an us-them even within Israel even within the people of God, the Pharisees have classified themselves as the we who are the keepers of the law and the righteous ones and those who may be from places like, you know, Galilee, that are less. They're lost. They aren't in the temple often enough. They aren't, uh, they aren't keeping the Sabbath well enough. Uh, they're, they're just sinners. They're lost ones. In our circles today, we would look at these as those who, who were once among us and then have gone off into sin. Who were, who were and have claimed the possession, to be a possession of Christ and yet have gone off to live lives of their own liking rather than of Christ's liking. So we find the application not only applicable to the church in terms of our relationship with the world, of seeking the loss in the world, but of seeking the loss of our own number who have gone out into the world. That both of these are of importance to the ministry of any who want to do the work of God. And so we have a hundred sheep and one is lost. It has wandered off. Ninety-nine are left. But who does the shepherd concern himself with? That one. That one out of a hundred that needs to be found. Verse 4 of chapter 15 tells us that what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And the expectation of God is that all these people listening to him, both the Pharisees and the sinners and, and tax collectors, the scribes, all of them would have associated very clearly with this. Well, certainly, if I'm losing 1%, even 1% of my flock, this is one out of 100, it is of concern to me, and I will go out and look for it. I will look for it diligently till I find it. It is not just a little 
uh, glance around on the sidelines of the field to see if it's there. He will count and then he will look and he will leave them where they are to search out diligently for that one that is lost. This is not just a cursory attempt. This is a faithful, diligent, seeking out the lost one. And we find that the shepherd here is referring to God himself. That God himself is the seeker of the lost. Jesus Christ describes him that. I've not come, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we don't often communicate God as, as a seeker. That he is the one seeking the lost. That he is constantly desiring after their repentance. And yet we find that throughout all of scripture. We studied this morning in Sunday schools. We looked at Jonah, that God sent Jonah to a lost group. Why? Because he wanted them to repent. Were they Israelites? No, they were Ninevites. Were they worth saving? No. No. But he wanted to. He sought them. Jonah didn't think they were worth saving, but God did. Not because of how well, how good they were, because of how good God is. And Jonah understood that. And so we find God consistently, really throughout all of Scripture, fulfilling this role as the one who is seeking the lost, wherever they may be. And so the shepherd here is going out seeking the lost, and so we should expect God to be doing the same. That he is not so quick to just write off anyone. It is the power of his mercy and grace to seek the lost until they be found. He does not give up. He searches and he finds that one. And the shepherd here finally finds the one. And the implication here is that it took some effort. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He takes upon this lost one. And now remember, there's 99 sheep that don't get carried. They're standing on their own two, four, sorry, four feet, not two. <laughs> Although if we think of ourselves as the sheep, it's applicable. Um, so they're out there on their own feet. They're carrying, and here's this one who is lost. And the lost one isn't kicked home, is it? The lost one isn't drugged home. The lost one is picked up. There is great rejoicing. I have found what I have been looking for. I have What we have sought to accomplish has been accomplished. And I'm going to put this one over my shoulder. And I'm taking it home. I'm going to walk this one all the way home. I'm going to take it with me. And no matter what the weight is, no matter how long the trip is home, I'm carrying that sheep that was lost. That's how much my rejoicing is. I'll take the extra effort it takes to haul this lost one, this dumb sheep that goes wandering off. I'm not complaining as I'm carrying it. I'm rejoicing and I'm getting ready for a party. Because when I get home, I'm going to call my friends together and say, Hey, sheep's still on my shoulders. Look what I found. One out of a hundred. Any of you would have done it if we were talking about sheep. You know, something important like livestock that God tried to get Jonah to at least value the livestock of the city of Nineveh. 
He comes into a second one. I'm not going to tell you the conclusion because I want to get you into the second one. Then we're going to draw these two conclusions together. Lost coin. Woman has lost a coin. This is a drachma. This is the only place in the New Testament that describes a drachma. Uh, it would have been about a day's wages during a drachma, varying upon the economy where we're at uh, in the time period. Probably about a day's wages, maybe a little bit more, possibly a little less. Um, you might say, well, she lost one out of ten coins. Uh, this would probably be something that she had as her, uh, and, and many women had a, a special kind of, we would, uh, it's a necklace kind of thing where they would have had ten coins in that. It would have been kind of their uh, savings plan, if you're their emergency fund that most women uh, of middle class or better in Israel had. They would have kept ten coins in this piece of jewelry that they would not necessarily have always worn but always had with them if they had traveled or, or nearby or in their home. And here this gal has lost one of the ten. We went out searching for 1%. What are we going to do for 10%? 10% of my savings. I've lost one of my 10 coins that are my, my safety net, if you will, financially, that if there is great trouble and if, there's, and if evil befalls me, I'll have these 10 coins. One is lost. It has come out of its fitting, perhaps, somehow, and it is somewhere around. And she knows it's nearby because it would not be carried off far from her person. And so she takes a lamp and she sweeps the house and searches diligently or carefully until she finds it. There's no quit in this girl either. No quit in the shepherd. No quit in the woman. I'm going to keep searching. I'm going to do the extra effort it's going to take. I'm going to light that lamp. I'm going to... Um, Get up, I'm going to sweep the room. And you might say, well, it must be at night. Not necessarily. If you get to the Middle East, you'll see how dark the insides are. There are very few windows. Um, and so she's in there. She's looking all over. got to find this somewhere. I have to find this. It's a tenth of my savings. I have to look for it. And I'm not going to quit. I've got the ten, the nine coins over here, but I'm looking for that tenth, and I'll look in this corner and that corner, and she sweeps the room from corner to corner to corner, looking for that tenth one, that one. She finds it. Is there a party for the nine? No, but there's a party for that one. She calls her friends over and says, Look, I found it, I've lost, but now it's found. Rejoice with me. And then we come to the parable of the lost son. And we're going to spend some time there, of course. Before we do that, look at what brings rejoicing in heaven. It's not the 99 Pharisees who don't need to repent. It's not the 9 out of 10 that stay in the right place and, and are secure. Cause for rejoicing is that one that comes and is found. That one that was lost. And all the energy and effort and diligence to find that one, when it brings one to repentance, when it brings that one 
into the fold, back into the fold, when it brings that one back into its setting with the its nine mates, it says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God, one sinner repenting. One sinner. You can have 99 people who are self-righteous and heaven will not burst into joy. You have one that says, Oh, I'm a sinner. Christ has sought that one, found him, and they have returned. It's one of the few places that really describes what effect activity of ministry on earth has in heaven directly, the direct effect. We can uh, we, we often take a passage like this and we and we apply it to a lot of other instances, um, but this is one of the few direct references that an activity on earth produces an activity in heaven. And it is when sinners repent. Angels rejoice in the presence of God. And yet we find that unlike Christ, unlike the shepherd, unlike the woman, we tend to be more like the Pharisees and feel that we should be smug in being one of the nine or one of the 99. Instead of feeling the, the necessity that we go off and look for that one, that we participate in that process, that we, that we concern ourselves with that one that is lost to the point of seeking that one lost one, wherever they may be. And it is certain that the shepherd looked in many places where there wasn't a lost one that would come. It is certain as the woman swept through her house and looked in every nook and cranny that many of them were void of that, of course. And we press on. She didn't give up. She didn't stop. She pressed on, looking for that one. Just one. And so we find the diligence of the love of God that we ought to have in our lives as well, that Christ represented and presented to us That as God seeks the lost, so ought we. That as he rejoices over one sinner repenting, and as the angels do, so must we. And so we come to the parable of the prodigal son. And again, we find a lost one. Man had two sons. The younger one, asked for his inheritance, and we might think of this as just a monetary thing, but the inheritance in the Middle East was divided between the capital, uh, in other words, the, 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 uh, uh, that which was producing the income and the income that it was producing, and it was often the case that you would um, kind of sign over ownership of the capital to your children before you died, and then the income that was produced that they would get after your death. Um, this young man was asking for the capital. 
And there were some warnings in the Mishnah about doing this, uh, which tells us that it was done by some people to to uh, let their uh, sons have uh, control of their capital, uh, and thus the income it produces as well. And so this young man asked for it all. He wanted the capital. He wanted the 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 core, and and the father obliged him. The son takes that and goes. Does foolishly with it. Wastes it, it says. He had spent all of it. He wasted all of the possessions, not just the income is producing, but the capital itself. He saved none of it. He, he, he was not prudent at all. He was not thinking that there might come some bad times down the road that he might need some savings for. That, that he just he, he, he was living for the day. No thought to tomorrow. No thought that perhaps some of this will catch up with him. None at all. Just totally living for the day. And we find in here the foolishness within the thinking of the sinner of the saint who sins, of the son who goes off into the worldliness, of that one who needs to be drawn, the lost ones of the faith. Those who have made claim to Christ and have been wandered off. We find that process right here, that they undervalue that inheritance that God has established for them. They undervalue the great blessings that are there and they seek to waste it really on just things of today. They have no thought to its purpose. Its purpose and the longevity and the necessity of careful management in order to be prepared for what is to come. Well, what comes? Not only does this man, young man, waste what he he has been given, his inheritance, but then he is confronted with something outside of his control. Imagine that. A famine in the land. And he's not prepared. In fact, he is fully unprepared. For a famine in the land would have used up his capital very quickly. And now he has nothing. And because there's a famine in the land... Other people are less reticent to, are, are, are reticent, are, are less willing to provide for him and to help him, to assist him, because there's a famine in the land. You know what bankers do when famines start, don't you? They foreclose. Yep, there's no money available anymore. You can't borrow it. You can't beg for it because everyone's hurting. A famine in the land exposes the foolishness of this son. One of my favorite radio programs growing up was Unshackled. And it's phenomenal to see how many of those stories started off with someone who grew up in a Christian home and even made a profession of faith. But much like this young man, foolishly undervalued their inheritance spiritually and wasted it and nearly destroyed their, well, they did destroy much of their life 
destroyed their bodies, destroyed their minds, destroyed their relationships, all for living for now, with no thought of tomorrow. Eat, drink, and be merry. And here the prodigal goes off, living for today, living to fulfill every want of his flesh until a famine arose. It was severe, and he began to be in want. No jobs anymore. There's a famine. No one has work for anyone. Finally, he gets a little relief. He gets um, a place, at least. He's sent into the fields to feed swine. And, of course, Christ's imagery here is very powerful, isn't it? I mean, this is a hideous job for a Jewish person. Um, and so we understand how far this person has traveled. He's not among his people anymore. He's out there among the Gentiles. This is where he's gone. He's gone out far into the world. He has, he has given over everything to that pursuit of his flesh. And now here he is carrying in the field, living in the field, caring for someone else's pigs. An animal that he's not supposed to touch. He's out there having to care for them, living with them in the field and recognizing that they are getting fed better than he is. Because to the owner's mind and I, the pigs are of greater value than he is. The pigs are the owner's livelihood. Poor boys to go out and sit with the pigs are a dime a dozen. You see how his value has just diminished to the point that he is lower than a servant. A pig is worth more than him. And so if we're going to choose between feeding the pigs or feeding the guy watching the pigs, we make sure the pigs get fed. This is where he has come. And this is where sin takes us always. It takes us to this point. And I want you to see just how low it went. Um, the fact is, is that too often we want to intervene before they get to that point. We want to intervene before he gets hungry. We want to intervene before he's out in the field. We want to intervene before he comes to his senses. But you want to, I want you to notice the Father does not intervene directly. The Father is seeking Him, certainly. The Father is looking for Him. The Father is expectant of Him. The Father is desirous of Him. But the Father is not directly intervening. If the lost want to stay lost, it is for them to be lost. Father will still ask for them. We'll still invite them. We'll still look for them. We'll still be ready to receive them, certainly. But intervention, the only thing that we find intervening here is his own thought process. He remembers what it's like at home. And he comes to his own senses. I've seen too many take the story of the prodigal son 
and the lost ones and say, I have to go out and seek them. Um, not until they come to their senses. When they come, we are ready. We seek them? Oh, yes. We seek them. That they might know that they should come. They must come. It is their only place of deliverance. And Christ certainly went out there with that message. But what was required was they come repenting. And so we find the Father not intervening in verse 14. Not intervening in verse 15. Not intervening in verse 16. We find Him still at home. But he's watching. He's looking every day. Looking for him. Desiring after him. Verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Great illustration of a right response to that question that we talked about this morning, Sunday school, a little bit that we've talked about extensively before, of coming to that point of saying, what am I doing here? How did I ever get into this place? Even the servants at my father's house have a better life than this life. Even the lowest among <laughs> the kingdom of heaven have a better life than anything I have here. And the fact is, they had a better life all along. Even while this boy was wasting his inheritance, even while he was just hungry but not absolutely destitute, the life back home was better. That needs to be recognized. He came to his senses, saying to himself, what am I doing here? I need to go home. I need to go back and just Beg for forgiveness. I need to go back and I want to, even if he just, I, I, I recognize I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Can you just make me one of your servants at least? Because even they're treated better than the way life is out there. To recognize that there is a cost, there's a penalty involved, there is a consequence to a Christian who goes off into the sinful world and lives for himself or herself and then does and finally he comes to repentance and comes back, there's still some costliness. And we're going to see that. Maybe not as much as they think, but there is a costliness. He says, I understand that. I recognize it. And so I'm coming back, not expecting to be restored, but expecting to come in and to be the servant here because I've wasted the capital of the family. Probably about 40% because he's the younger one. 30 to 40 percent of the total capital of the family. Of course, the father's looking because the father seeking him. And this seeking him isn't enabling. This is this invitation, this willingness to receive him, this open armedness he's described, this leaving the light on for him, so to speak. Because you'll notice that as he came to his father, he was still a great way from home. And his father saw him, loved him, had compassion on him, ran to him and fell his neck and kissed him. There is no reserve here. Isn't that great? 
There's no reserve. There's no uh, holding back and there's no bitterness. There's no resentment. There is none of this. There is uh, absolute compassion that says you have, you have obviously returned. You have come back. I'm not going to wait to hear your whole story. The fact that you're walking back is is demonstration enough of your repentance of your heart, and he runs forward and receives him. And this is the work that God does. This is that seeking out. He is ready to receive it in an instant. He is. He understands the heart. He knows what's going on. He doesn't wait for you to earn it. Do you see that? Has the son said anything? Has the son really paid back anything? Has he really demonstrated any evidence? The only evidence there is, here I come. Here I come. That's all I've got. Here I come. We have that hymn that we often, that nature's often saying at closing, Jesus, I come. I just come. That's all I got. I have nothing else to offer. But the amazing thing is, is that's all God asks. The son came to his senses and realized, what am I doing out here? This is horrible. This is miserable. This is, this is bad. This is ugly. This is disgusting. There's nothing good out here. And just to be in my father's house, even as a servant, is so much better. And so I'm going to go to my father with no expectation that I should be received, other than the fact that I know the quality of my father, the character of my father, and the father receives him, falls upon his neck, kisses him without no, no holding back, no grudges, no bitterness, no I told you so's, forgiveness and restoration. Restored to what level is the question. And this, there's some discussion about. And really the rest of the chapter is about this discussion of restored to what level and and what's going on here. He comes in, he says, listen, I've sinned against heaven and your sight, Dad, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There are those in the world today who were once part of this church and other churches, who rightly are no longer worthy to be called God's sons. Because of the sin that they have walked into, wallowed into, and are trapped into. But I have an amazing thing to tell you. There was a time, and still is, that we weren't worthy to be his son. And only by the work of Christ are we counted worthy today. And so the young man has spoken truth. He isn't worthy. He has sinned. He has tasted of the heavenly gift and has fallen away. And yet he has come to repentance. And so the Father is ready to receive him. And so he says, let me be a servant here. I know I cannot fulfill that role of son anymore. I have squandered my inheritance. I have no right to claim it anymore. And But 
can I be your servant here? I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I be your servant? The father, <laughs> interesting, the father doesn't say a lot to his boys, to this boy anyway. Um, he saw him, ran, fell on his neck, kissed him. And his response is not to say a thing to the son. Do you see that? He gives no answer to the son. Son says, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm not deserving to be called your son anymore, but here I am. I've come. That's all I've done. That's all I can do. I come. The father doesn't even answer him. Because you see, the issue is irrelevant to the father. He's already made the decision. And he demonstrated that already, and he will further demonstrate it. He doesn't turn to the son and say, oh, no, it's okay, son. No, he doesn't. He turns to the servants and says, go get the best and put it on him. Best robe, get a ring. Every designation, every evidence, this is my son. Communicate not only to the son, but to everyone in the house. You see, saying words to the son might have comforted the son. But the father went a lot farther than that. He says, I'm going to clothe you in all the sunly apparel and the ring that shows that you're still a member of the family so that you are reestablished corporately in this, in this household that none can speak against you as anything other than the son. You are a son. Your place has not been lost your position is secure. And further, we are going to celebrate your coming. Bring the fatted calf here, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. And again, he's still not talking to his son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. There was rejoicing. And the home here is describing heaven and the servants there, the angels, and the son, that sinner who has come to repentance and now they have killed the fatted calf. There's going to be a great feast and great rejoicing for one that was lost and loved has been found. And the process, certainly the father has been looking and looking and looking, not intervening, but looking for this act of repentance. And the act of repentance now brings this this. <laughs> just overflow to this lost son. I would contend that intervention prevents this kind of rejoicing. For intervention does not allow the person to come to himself and to come repenting of their own accord. And so we must distinguish between the seeking and the intervening. For it is certain that sinners who desire to sin must be left to it. While called to it, they cannot be intervened upon, but should be left to their sin and its consequences, even if it means being hungry And living out in the field with swine. Was the father cruel? Oh no. Sin is cruel. And some people are better off to learn that 
the most difficult way there can be. Until one comes to himself They have not reached the end of their sin. But once someone comes to themselves and recognizes their sin and repents of it and comes with nothing else to offer but coming home, then there can be great rejoicing. There can be deliverance. There can be Restoration. Let us not be like the older son. It was full of bitterness, full of envy, who had a concept of justice that was self-serving and not loving. He comes and rightly does he say, What's all this I hear? He gets the message from a servant. Your brothers come home. And we're having a celebration. We have received, your father's received him. Safe and sound. Isn't this wonderful? But instead, he was angry. In verse 28. And would not go in. He's going to sit outside and pout. Therefore, his father did what he had done for the other son. And I want you to notice that both sons were sinners. One was a self-righteous sinner and the other one was just knew he was a sinner. He's going to sit outside and pout and the father goes to him and says, listen, You have no right to this, essentially. These many years, or I'm sorry. Father came out and pleaded with him, begged him to come. Come in, come in. Verse 29, this is the answer he gives. These many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, was devoured your livelihood with harlots and you killed the fatty calf for him. Don't care about me. You spend all this energy and effort after this sinner. When do I get mine? You see, there's not a lot of difference between the two sons. Neither one was looking beyond tomorrow. The one out of duty or whatever stayed home and worked hard and from all outward appearances was an obedient son and yet he was full of bitterness. He was begrudging it of his father and begrudging it of his brother. Therefore, he was, while having a great inheritance, was as miserable as his brother. And so the statement is made, Son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. We're going to do what's right here. It was right for us to be merry and glad that one who is dead is alive again, the lost is found. Because it's right. God will always do right. 
always. You see, the brother, the older brother, was upset about a party. Because they were happy and celebrating this one and having a party for him. And the father comes and says, what are you thinking? You have everything in your future. And here we need to understand the extent of what was going on here. The younger brother comes home, has no future inheritance. He will be dependent from that point on, on his father and later his brother. For his inheritance is gone. On his own, he'll have to work and earn his own living. Uh, He will not be able to, the capital is gone. He is not getting another share. That share is over with. The entirety of what is left is the older older brother's. But the older brother hasn't seen the future. Just like the younger brother, when he asked for his inheritance and squandered his capital, wasn't looking beyond tomorrow, now this older brother isn't looking beyond tonight. The night of the party. He's not looking at the future and saying, realizing, you know what, everything here is mine. He only sees the immediate. And it's when our eyes focus upon that that we lose sight of the Big plan of God. When we look at just the immediate, oh, that we would see that when a lost one is found, there are eternal value to that. There's eternal value when a lost is found. That's why heaven rejoices. There is eternal value there. And we can rejoice with this one and recognize that they have squandered a portion. They have squandered their portion. And their existence will be different from this point on. There are consequences that this younger one will have to pay. Yes, he still has this position, but what is he lacking? He has no further capital to draw upon. And so he is there in a humbled state. Even though he is a son, he is in a humbled state as a son in that everything of the father's is going to go to the older son. There is a price he's paying. He got his capital. He wasted it. He's not going to get any more of dads and brothers. There is a consequence to walking out. And and we might read this story and say, I can go out and live how I like uh, for a little while and God will just be thrilled that I come back. Let me warn you, there is a cost. There is a penalty. And you can test the mercy and grace of God, but you'll be miserable in the process. Why would you want it? Yet we are foolish enough to see people take this story that way, that I can go out and live how I like, and I can come back whenever, and God will take me in, and everything will be just like it was. And we lose the force of this. This is not an excuse to go live like the world thinking you can come back anytime you want. But rather the force of this is the misery of sin and its cost that only Christ can overcome. There was no other help anywhere else. 
for this young man except at home. And it was right for him to stay there. But it is just as possible for you to be sitting in church today separate from the world and be filled with the same kind of heart sin that Christ speaks of in the older brother that was going on in the Pharisees and scribes. They're the older brother. They had all the benefits. They had the law. They had the God's word. They had all the benefits. They had the temple, the, 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 the practices there. They, they had it all. But they had the same heart disease that the youngest one had. The only solution was to surrender to the grace and mercy of the Father. And this Christ invites them to. Cause for rejoicing. The lost are found. And hence we participate with God in that process of seeking out the lost, not to intervene in their sin, to call them out of it, that they might know that here is a place where they will be received should they come to themselves and realize better to be in the lowest rank in God's family than to be anywhere else in the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity we have to study your word this morning. We pray that its force might be impacting upon our minds and hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.